Are there any frameworks that can help us to improve the way we make decisions? The framework is the rational decision-making process. And, and that's basically about five stages, right? So, so the first one is really clearly define the problem. And then the second step is evaluation of alternatives. It's really good to think about what the different options are. There's always a third way. The other ones is basically... Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sarah Landi Tortoli, and my guest today is Professor Dr. Cohen Powell, Professor of Marketing at Northeastern University, MBI Oslo, Principal Research Scientist at Amazon, and expert in decision-making. With Professor Powell, we talk about how to make better decisions, and frameworks to help you improve your personal and business decision-making, including what product should you build and what are the right KPIs to focus on. I personally took a lot of notes during this conversation, so I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Klein, you are an expert, uh, in decision-making. And uh, what I would like to, to do in this conversation is to go through some scenarios and uh, analyze the concept of uh, optimal decision-making in several scenarios, if you're willing. It's a little game that we're playing. <laughs> it's, it should be fun. But before we start with, with scenario number one, I want to just first uh, get an understanding of what are the basis uh, in general for a good decision making and perhaps uh, even more important or as important is uh, are there any frameworks that can help us to improve the way we make decisions? That's a that's a great question. I, I mean, I would say you know a, a good decision is the one that you can live with afterwards, and and I I think that's a Ooh. that's a very kind of outcome oriented <laughs> one. And 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 I'll I'll give you a fun example that's from my from a colleague of me at Stanford. So, so he always talks about the process of making decisions, and that that's very important that you that you agree on that one. And then kind of, you know, ultimately, whether, you know, the decision was successful or not, right, depends on so many factors. Uh, but you have to be you have to be comfortable with the, with the process. <laughs> the example that he gives, which is very typical to his culture, is that uh, so he was at Stanford in the U.S. and he's originally from India. And so right before his 30th birthday, he, he calls up his mom in India and says, hey, I want to marry before I'm 30, of course. So can you find me a, a suitable uh, lady to marry in India? And she's like, yeah, but but you have to you have to adhere to the process. You have to promise me. And he's like, yes, okay. What are your conditions? And she says, well, I'll find you three ladies, but you have to promise that you'll go on a date with every single one of them. So you can't say after the first one, oh, I'm in love with her. No, you have to go on the, all the three dates, and then you also have to promise that you you select one of them before a certain time. And he's like, fine, I'll do that. And then so she does have the three ladies, and the dates lined up for him. 
the first one, it doesn't click so much. The second one, he's like, oh, this is fantastic. This is the woman of my life. I'm going to marry her. I don't want to go on the third date with the other lady. And the woman is, and his mother is like, no, you have to go. <laughs> so he goes to the third date and then he ultimately marries the person from the second date. And they have been happily married, I think, for 30 or 40 years now. So he, he put it in a presentation about uh, basically agreeing, you know, whether it's yourself or, you know, with your family or with your company on a certain process for decision making. And that, and that, that's really important to, uh, to avoid bad decisions and make good decisions. So, aside from everyone getting, uh, uh, you know, matchmaker, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how can we lay those ground rules uh, that can help us uh, with decision making? Makings. First of all, yeah. like, how do I even start? You know, to understand what those ground rules should be. Okay. Well, well, I mean, the framework that I've been taught in, in my undergraduate, right, which also people grow up with, which I think is still very useful, is, is the rational decision-making process. Okay. So how, how should you approach a decision? And there has been a lot written about it in, you know, probably the last uh, 2,000 years or so. And, and that's basically about five stages, right? So, so the first one is really clearly define the problem. And so, so if you talk to kind of a really good listener or maybe sometimes a consultant or somebody that you ask for advice, they're going to push you on really identifying what the problem is. So because, you know, what you think, you know, you have to make a decision out that may just be a symptom, right? That may just be kind of a, a symptom of an underlying uh, disease if you're a doctor and you diagnose something of a problem. And so it's just really important to understand what is the exact problem that you're facing. And then the second step is evaluation of alternatives. And so that is typically the one that I help people, I think, you know, almost the most with. So, so you are like, stuck in your own situation. You may know a lot about your business, for instance, or about, uh, about uh, your situation, but you may not always be the best person in saying, what are the options? What are the alternatives? What are some of the things I can do? And so, and so it's, it's really good to think about uh, what the different options are. And, and if people put you for, for a, you know, says ye, say yes or no to two things, there's always a third way, right? That's, that's what my kids said too, if I put them for an ultimatum. So there's, there's always kind of something else that, that sometimes gets you out of a hard pickle in terms of, you know, that you thought you only had two real options and uh, that you could uh, have a different alternative. And so it's really important then to get as much information as you can about these alternatives. And so I would say this, this phase is typically a bit more dispassionate. It should be very rational in terms of saying, well, what is really out there? And then as you're getting the information, you come to the evaluation. And there I would always see that your feelings play a very important role, right? So, so as you're getting more information about these options, you will feel in your you know, heart or in your guts, depending on how you put it, which one seems like the better, the better kind of point for you. Uh, so some people, some kind of quantitative nerds like me, like to do this formally. So I have the spreadsheet that I put pluses and minuses. And, and, and I use that for like, you know, where I got my first job, you know, pluses and minuses in, in other decisions, also kind of which quarters I work with. Uh, but then ultimately, it's important to kind of take this with a grain of salt because you ultimately go where your heart tells you to go. But it's hopefully informed by, by the information you get. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Wait. 
I have I have like uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Million, millions of questions already. Yeah. But sorry for the interruption. Maybe there were more steps. Uh, I don't want to skip any. No, the, the other ones is basically that you actually have to make the decision. And so, and so some people forget that. And and so I, I will see as as a, as a manager, right, or as, you know, a startup founder um, or as a leader, your first task is to actually make the decision. And so sometimes that's forgotten, right? I mean, in, in some companies, they say that the worst decision is no decision. And, and I agree with that. So a lot of times kind of, you know, you don't wait for all the perfect information. You actually have to make the decision, communicate it to the people that get, get involved and affected by the decision. And then, of course, you have to implement it and you have to evaluate to learn from, uh, from the implementation and from your decision whether it was the right one. So, so, so after you make the decision, kind of, you know, be, be, be strong about it, transparent about it, and then also implement it and, uh, and follow up on, uh, uh, on finding out whether it was a good thing or not. Okay, so I have, uh, I think we can do go two ahead. part of this podcast <laughs> because I have a lot of questions. Yeah, so ahead. first of all, when you say you should know what the alternatives are, but as you correctly mentioned, when you are really that deeply in a situation, a certain situation, it's very difficult uh, to spot that there is a third way and a fourth way maybe and so forth. So what are ways in which we could see different alternatives? We could discover them. So I, I would say pre-internet uh, talk to a lot of people. And so I always love to learn from the mistakes of others. <laughs> that is also a reason why your, your podcast is so great, by the way, Sarah. So it, it, it's always nice to hear other people's stories and, and things they really have enjoyed doing and decisions they were really happy about later on and then decisions that they have regretted making. So, so I, I think that's, that's, that's a great idea. And, and there's, you know, there's, there's resources you can check out now online, right? I think generative AI is getting sometimes a bad rap. But, but for me, it's, it's a really good tool to kind of get some options out there. I, I mean, to give you one example, so I told an introduction, I did my PhD in UCLA, but I, I actually started in my native Belgium. And I didn't even know that you could do a PhD in marketing in, in, in the States and that it was a good idea. I just hadn't been exposed to, to people that, that thought about that way. And so I went to a conference and one of the professors that gave me feedback was a Belgian professor in UCLA. <laughs> and, so, and I was like, well, among the three, he gave the most relevant feedback. And so then I started looking it up and I'm like, oh, you can do a PhD in the US and these are some of the benefits. And so I started getting interested. So it's, it's very, very often you learn about things by the people you talk to, which, which sometimes is incidental, but you can work to ex expose yourself to more points of view, uh, whether offline or online, it's, it's now much easier, right, to join discussion groups or, or, or join kind of people that, that you know come from another bubble than your own. Yeah. Oh, I mean that that's fantastic. Um like one way I do it for myself, but I do it like for for personal stuff, I think. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, do you know Byron Katie, the work? No. So basically she has uh like when some unhelpful thoughts uh, come your way, she has a process uh, for you to deal with it. And the first question that she asks is is it true? And then the second one is, uh, 
are you absolutely sure that this is true? And then, like, there is one more step that I need to Google because I don't remember it. Uh, but the the final step is what she calls the turnaround. And basically, you need to turn the problem upside down. So you phrase it that you, you phrase it differently. Like, for example, uh, I don't know, uh, my brother is mean to me, right? That that could be the problem. And I could say, uh, my brother should be mean to me. I should be mean to my brother. You know, like, and then you start, you know, slowly you turn things around until you arrive to a new perspective, basically. So it reminds me a little bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think that is really useful. I, I think also, uh, I mean, one of the, the frameworks that I like myself from psychology is, is regulatory focus or regulatory focus. And that basically has to do with whether you're mostly, uh, and they call that promotion focus versus prevention focused. And that is whether you see life as opportunities or threats. And, and I find that very helpful to understand my own thinking and reverse it. So, so promotion focus, it's also called a growth mindset by some mm -hmm. people. It's basically that you see life and decisions mostly as opportunities that you either take or that you miss. Yeah. And so, and, and, and people, you know, from your childhood, you have a natural tendency. And so I'm relatively extreme on that side. So I see life as opportunities that you either take or you miss. And so I tend not to think about the risks, for instance. Uh, other people have much more a prevention focus. That means that you see life as threats and disasters that you either avoid or that happen to you. And so I've learned, for instance, with the pandemic, that I'm a bit too much on this promotion focused and that I should think more about, you know, risks and things that can go wrong. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. And, and an extremely helpful thing for me is always if I make a decision about a future commitment, which happens quite often, right? I have to decide whether I'm going to be on this podcast. You have to decide whether you go on a business trip in a, in, a, in a month and so forth. I always try to imagine myself as my future self right before having to do it. So instead of thinking, oh, you know, it's a Friday afternoon and somebody invites me on some business trip, I'm like, okay, and I see the potential and, and, and what, what, uh, how, how fantastic it would be. But a month from now, I imagine myself on that Monday morning having to go on the plane and having to forego other things that I could be doing <laughs> and so forth. And so that imagining your future self uh, is, for instance, helpful for me to think more about the uh, the obstacles, the practicalities and things that I typically don't, don't look at. And so other people that are much more prevention focused, uh, what I do with them is, is to think much more about the potential and the long term. So, for instance, you know, you don't, you know, uh, you know, you're right before going to a party, which would be nice for your social life, but you're like, well, I don't feel too well, you know, I don't think that my clothes are right and so forth. But then, you know, in the long term, every year you're like, I don't go out enough. <laughs> and I miss the socialization. So people who are much more prevention focused, I typically focus on, hey, you know, overall in the long term, what kind of person you want to be? And then they start thinking a bit more about opportunities. So, so that, that's something that very practically helped me. Aha. Uh -huh. Interesting. How do you go about gathering information to make your your decisions? Because you mentioned you have like a you're more the analytical type. So you do yeah. like spreadsheets and stuff uh, <laughs> and stuff like that. Which by the way, I'm a huge nerd like like I do that as well. Mm -hmm. Like I remember when I wanted to understand which was the best 
hosting website provider. I mean, like a spreadsheet, you know, and had like every single little voice, you know, and then like check marks for each. Okay, this is this, this isn't that, you know, but like, I'm curious, uh, what's your process like? So I, I mean, you know, in, in this rational decision-making process, right? As, as I said, I think it's very helpful. You think about what are your criteria, what are the dimensions that that are important for you in this decision, and then you think about how to weigh those criteria, and then of course for every alternative you have your score on that one right so 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 a very formal way it's called the multi-attribute framework and that basically just you you multiply your criteria with their weight and then the score for each alternative and you come up with the total score it's a very kind of quick way to do it now what is so important in that one is first of all figuring out what are your criteria and and for me, it's important to recognize that these criteria and their weights may change as you're going through the process. So, 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 so the example that I give when I was on the job market, right? So I was, you know, invited by about, I think, 17 universities at the time. And I had my starting criteria about what would be great. But as they were flying me out to visit their places, I came up with, with new ones. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. because I would see things there that I either liked or didn't like, and then, so I would say, be flexible to add uh, to things. And then the same thing for the weighting of the criteria, right? So you may think that, oh, this is all about one one dimension, about X, but then you realize over time that, that Y and Z are also important. Uh, so so I, I think that's important. And then, you know, about the alternatives, uh, you know, talk to people who have lived them, I would say. So, so our oldest son now went through the whole college application process in the U.S., and we never got better information than talking to current students and past students of that place and also parents of these universities because they can tell you stuff that is not in a brochure and that, <laughs> that, that you know, you took for granted because all of the alternatives you've lived through had something in common, but then that other place had some negative that you never even considered that, uh, that you would have to account for. So, so, so yeah, in, in terms of the score, you know, the, the score should be very kind of, I would say the course, you know, I, I try them to be more objective based on what I hear from people, but the decision criteria are your own. So don't, you know, allow yourself to be swayed by other people's weights. It's, it's your personal decision, right? Or your company's, you know, future. Uh, but then in, in this, how you score the alternatives, I would really try to be as, as objective as possible there. Yeah. I mean, objectivity is, uh, is difficult, especially if uh, it's a decision that, you know, involves you, etc. Yeah. But like you mentioned, like, for example, shall I get this job or not? Right. Yeah. So how did you make the decision for yourself? Like, for example, accepting uh, the job uh, that you that you had at the mm-hmm. Amazon or like being a professor yeah. and moving into in the US, you know, how did you <laughs> did you went about all those personal choices, you know, like thinking about it? So, so, so to some extent, yes, in the sense that kind of both going to the U.S. and taking the jobs, it was something I felt I just had to do at the time. So even though I got lots of information about it, it's it, it's important to realize that, you know, you have your wants and desires and, and kind of uh, and pet peeves at, at, at one time. I, I, I'm very much a believer in this kind of... Uh, I, I think it was Nietzsche called it Willet zur Macht, uh, in the sense that you have certain wants and you should go after them. 
And then, of course, you know, once you take the job, after five, six months, you decide it's not for you, right? Or you, you, you start up a company and, and it was not what you turned out to be. The audience that wants to pay for it is very different, so you have to pay for it and so forth. And, and, and that is perfectly fine. And very often also when we, when we get what we wanted or thought we wanted, we realize that's not... That's not the one thing that makes us happy, right? So, so I think it's important when you make the decision that, um, you know, it's really what you want at the time, but to also then realize that that things may change. Yeah, yeah. I remember I spent a lot of time really thinking about decision making, like a lot, because in my job as a product manager, yeah, like my job was uh, essentially making decisions, yeah, prioritizing making decisions, say, okay, we're going to focus on this uh, versus uh, that, you know? Yeah. And for everything that I said yes to, there were at least 10, 20, 30 that I implicitly or, or explicitly say yeah. no to. So I really spent a lot of time, uh, like, thinking about decision-making. And I remember, like, reading this, I think it was a shareholder letter from Jeff Bezos yeah. that talks about... Uh, type uh, one and type and two, two yeah. of decision making i might get them mixed up but one of them is basically uh that it calls them reversible decision making yeah. that are very easy to go back from and then there is the type two if i'm not getting them mixed up yeah. uh, that instead are very difficult uh, to to reverse Right. So how should one uh, think about that? And also in relation to the time it takes uh, to make a decision. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's an excellent question. And, and, and so we live this kind of uh, one way and two way doors uh, every day uh, at Amazon. And, and so um, in, in, in two way doors, right, so that you can easily go back. Uh, the, the point is always that you have to make a decision fast. And so, yes, it should be based on information, but the important thing is that you make a decision. And, and you know, if you're in a bigger company, I think it's absolutely crucial to delegate it to the, the lowest level of the hierarchy that has enough information to make the decision. So these are the kind of things that you should really allow your people to make. And, and then you can monitor and evaluate, but they shouldn't spend too much time making the decision. And uh, and it should be made at that level of the organization. The, the one-way doors, you know, they're going to be very costly to reverse. And there you want to have a lot more, you know, meetings and, 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 and documents. A, a very cool way. So Amazon really has a document uh, writing and reading culture. So, so when we have like an hour meeting, we start half an hour by reading the doc. And what I really like about the docs, it's like three or four pages typically. But then the, the last part is always frequently asked questions. So, so the person who's proposing a decision uh, has anticipated and should anticipate what objections will be raised, what practicalities people will have to know, you know, which things will have to get up. And so, and, and very often the one that I add to it is, you know, what has to happen for this to succeed, right? So that we think through that one. Uh, but but so that is that is absolutely key to each. And so for these you know harder to reverse decisions, we do have a lot more meetings and a lot more iterations of that doc than for uh, the easily reversible decisions. What's the the process like then for more complex decisions uh, at Amazon? So when you say much more meetings, etc. Like, how does it look like? And uh, at which point do you draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we need to make the decision now? 
Well, well. So, so the first page is always uh, the press release. So it's called PRFAQ, press release and frequently asked questions, because we want to work backwards. We want to start from what we want to offer the customer, right? And so, and so, and so, forcing the person to write the anticipated press release tells you two things. Number one, they have to put a date there. <laughs> so, <laughs> suppose that I propose something and I say, "Hey, you know, April twelfth, two thousand twenty-four." So that basically kind of gives an idea about what the timeline is supposed to be, right? And there may be external deadlines, but you know this is very cool for that one. And and then you basically write, uh, you know, how this would look like as a press communique, kind of, you know, what is the customer benefit or what is the customer problem that you're solving? Some quotes, right? Some simulated quotes from customers who are like, hey, I'm this kind of customers, and I'm really helped by this for this and this reason, which also identifies the target audience for the the solution and so, so it's really working backwards kind of this is what we ultimately want to achieve and then which steps do we have to take and and at which time do they have to happen right so at, at mm-hmm. a kind of critical bad thinking on timing uh which teams have to be involved uh, to do that and then kind of have we invited the right people to the meetings uh, you don't want the meeting to be that too large and we already yeah. have you know everybody has too many meetings but you do want to have the key stakeholders or representatives uh, in there yeah, absolutely. So let's stay with the with the company um, yeah. example and talk about uh, collective uh, decision making. Yeah. So, and we talk about making going through different scenarios, right? Yeah. So, let's assume that this is uh, scenario number one, mm-hmm. and uh, we are in a company that is in a growth stage or is already established, like Amazon, right? Yeah. How do you make decisions regarding uh, topics such as um, innovation? So, for example, establishing a new product line or uh, entering a new market, uh, adopting uh, a new technology. Like, for example, how should we leverage uh, AI and ChatGPT in the company? Or should we, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's all kind of it goes back to your leading principles, right? So, so one of Amazon is think big. So we we always encourage employees to kind of think really big, but of course, then you get things like last year. One of the ideas was to do with the metaverse, and probably this year, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be more. So you 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 kind of aim through the process to think about some patterns in innovation, right? So we all know innovation is risky. So it's uh it it's something that. That, that you should approach as such instead of kind of anticipating a guaranteed result. Uh, we, we also know that it takes up resources that could be spent somewhere else. So as a company, you're always thinking, well, is this something that needs to be done? Is there a real need for it? And then are we in a, in a really good position to do it? And I mean, one of the things I picked up from my strategy colleagues, right? I was I was always against this whole sustainable competitive advantage idea <laughs> because because I I think you know you can never sustain anything. The competition is so good. So in, instead, I like the idea of of basically running faster than your competition, right? So so anything that any company does, eventually in time, you can replicate with your company, specifically with the newest tools. But you know, by the time you have done so, the original company has has dig much deeper in it already so so yes you know your company is particularly good at some things and not good at others i I typically give the example of for instance 3m versus dell 
So, so 3M is this company that is fantastic in developing new stuff and is also pretty good at commercializing them. And with all due respect, absolutely sucks at running an existing business. So, so, so one of their key metrics is how much revenue are we getting from products that we have developed in the last five years? Why is that such a good metric for them? It's because that's where all their profit comes from. So, so once cheap competition comes in, you know, they're not very good with their pricing and, and continuing there. On the other hand, Dell Computers is, you know, in my eyes, not a very innovative company, right? They thrive in an industry where everybody understands what, 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 what the products are, and they aim to do it more efficient. So before the internet, you know, Dell had this, this, this business that, that they would only take people who knew how to buy computers. This was in the early 90s. And so they didn't need as much hand-holding as, 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 other, as other kind of audiences. And they bought computers that were already out there, and Dell would just make it more efficient. You know, first by telephone to buy it, then, of course, with the internet and so forth. So for Dell, the metric of, you know, how much are we selling from things developed in the last five years wouldn't make much sense. So, so your company tends to be naturally better at some innovations and, and at innovating versus maintaining an existing business. And I think kind of these two things are absolutely crucial. So, so, so look at, is there a strong customer need? Is that a customer we want to serve and can profitably serve in the long term? Does my, my company and my culture and my employees, are they particularly good at, at this? Or, you know, can they become very good and can they maintain it by getting better and better at it? And then, of course, also, like, who are your real competitors in the space, right? So not just the product category, but, but which, which companies address the same need? So if you're making an entertainment product, you're competing with all of the other entertainment products out there, even though they're not called video games or, you know, entertainment parks and so forth. Mm, okay. And uh, you mentioned something uh, related to KPIs. One of the ways that, you know, we, we can understand uh, if it was a good decision or not, mm. uh, it's by picking the right way to observe it, right? Yep. Uh, and uh, in a company context, uh, this usually means uh, picking metrics uh, and KPIs. Yep. So, and I know that you've written about it also in your book, but also an article from it that yep. was very insightful. So maybe I wonder if you could share how should uh, a company... Uh, Product manager, a founder, whatever, go about picking the right metrics to to observe. So yeah, I'm, I'm by training, uh, I'm an engineer, so I look at everything as input, throughput, output, <laughs> and then so so your input are your actions. Uh, the output is what you ultimately want, right? That could be sales, profits, or if you're not for profit, things like donations uh, and so forth. And then so in, in the KPIs in the middle, the throughputs, I mean, I, in my research and, and examples in consultancy, two main criteria came up, right? So if anybody is proposing you KPI, the question is, well, does it ultimately translate into my output, into what I really want? And the second question is, can I influence it with my action? So, so can I easily see that what I do or what my people can do influences it, right? So I see a lot of company dashboards that are full with metrics that either the employee can't influence, right? And then it's very disheartening because you can change it or ultimately do not fit with performance. And, and so the latter part we called vanity metrics, right? So I'll give you a typical example. So the first car company I did consultancy for in the US, I then later moved to Istanbul in Turkey. 
and, and, and so they wanted me to do something there. And I was just down the street from my university. It was really nice. And this is 2008. And at that moment, I think Turkey was the third biggest Facebook nation in the world. So after the US and the UK, Turkey had the third highest number of Facebook accounts. And it was just a very popular kind of social media platform. And so this car company had about the same market share in Turkey as in the US, I think about 2%. And so they were really keen on, 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 on following academics' advice. So academics had been saying to companies all the time, hey, so many of your customers are online. Why aren't you putting more of your marketing resources there? And they did. So in 2008, they spent 50% of their whole budget online. And they were very proud on Facebook to have the, the, the number one automobile Facebook site in Turkey. <laughs> and, so, and so even though they only had 2% market share, and they were so happy with that. And they spent lots of time interacting with people there. But unfortunately, they didn't see any increase in sales. <laughs> so that's a big of a problem. And so I was like, well, but you know, you know your business better than I do, right? So what do you absolutely need to get to increase your market share, right? And to get people to drive your fantastic new cars. And they said, oh, that's so easy. It's test drives. So we need to get people in a test drive. And so I got some of their past data and we, we, we analyzed it. And we saw that, that none of their Facebook interactions and engagement drove test drives. And I'm like, well, you know, that's, that's a problem. And so it, so what they did had an impact on, you know, Facebook interactions. So that's great. But the Facebook interactions did not, you know, go downstream in terms of test drives and sales. And then you go deeper, right? And then you say, well, is the audience the wrong one? Are these just, you know, teenagers or early 20-somethings who don't have the money to buy your cars? Or, you know, is the kind of things that people are talking about unlikely to get a call to action to actually do the test drive? But so that's that's one of the things that 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 I say. So whenever you have a metric, can you or you know somebody that that is seeing the metric influence it? Does it have responsiveness to your marketing action? And then does it have what I call sales conversion? You know, does it ultimately convert to to what you ultimately want? Hmm. Yeah, this is a, also a topic that I spend quite a bit of time <laughs> thinking because observing how your product is doing requires you to really focus on metric and really pick the one that I think can really move the needle and not focusing on what we call the vanity metrics, yeah. right? And there are all sorts of framework that product manager use to uh, get around that. Yeah. But most of the listeners uh, of this podcast actually do work a startup or have a startup. And as such, in a startup, you really have to make a lot of uh, decisions, uh, small and big, because your survivor basically, like, literally depends on it. And it's really fast to see the impact. Like, you know, example of decisions that, that you have to make as a startup is like positioning, uh, getting founded, uh, how you're going to build your customer funnel, uh, your marketing strategy. And the thing that I struggled the most uh, working at a startup was actually optimizing resources. So given oh, yeah. the amount of money that we have and the people that we have, and we have like, a, you know, a list of stuff that we could potentially do that is long, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> that is so long, <laughs> How do I optimize resources and and make the one thing that really drive the needle yeah. forward, basically? So, 
And you can pick uh, whatever direction you would like to go with right. this, uh, but I wonder how would you go about approaching those challenges? Well, I, so I have written about the lean startup methodology, which I which I really like, uh, and this was in the context of, uh, of 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 big data, and that we saw it, you know, complicating versus you know making decision making easier. And, and, and so, what I like about the lean startup methodology is that you know you, you think about the major things that you have to achieve, and then within a certain time, right? Because if you get early success and more resources, then you can do more things. But you you test out hypotheses. You make your hypotheses explicit, and you test them out. And the, the stereotypical example is how Zappos got started, right? So, so the big question is, hey, you know, our assumption is that people are willing to buy shoes online. So, how do you test that out before you? have the whole production and inventory things you know the the guy basically you know made the website and 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 you know made you know shoes in a nice you know presentable way and then he had actually people buying it and then he would go to his competition to buy the shoe because he didn't have the shoes yet so so he said look the production and the inventor of the shoes yourself that is that comes later i first want to make sure that that i can make a website that people are comfortable buying shoes from and so, and so, think about the things that kind of need to happen first. I think that's really important. I mean, I'll give you an example. So, in in the in the late nineties, I was I was I was in LA, the first intercom internet boom, and I was only twenty six. I was much younger, but people already then taught me. I was pretty skeptical about technology that I was too old because there was this presentation, and this was nineteen ninety eight, about a company developing a mouse that would give off smell and touch. Because they said, look, you know, on the internet, you can buy audio stuff and visual stuff. But if you buy like a beautiful dress, you can go over it with your fingers to feel the fabric. If you buy a perfume, you can smell it. So they were making this mouse and spending millions and millions of dollars of VC money, right? To kind of, if you would go over fabric, you would feel it in your fingers. If it perfume, it would give off the smell. And so I was the only one laughing out loud in the, in the room. And I'm like, no, you know, consumers will not want a mouse that gives off smell. <laughs> They're like, well, you don't know anything. You're too old. The new generation gets it. And it's now 25 years later. But kind of the whole kind of assumption that this would be something that people would even want to have, I, I thought was, was, was really funny. Because there's a lot of fundamentals of human behavior and, and our, you know, our holdups that, that are, you know, only very slowly change that you can if so if you really want to do something that nobody else has done before you really have to look at kind of how do people have to change their behavior and then you can test out whether they're willing to do that or not yeah i mean experimentation is huge but I, to be honest with you i'm gonna say something that it's gonna sound mm. really unpopular right now uh -huh. but i think experimentation especially as a startup yeah. is overestimated in okay. the sense, uh, I'm not saying that you should not experiment. You should, but uh, experiments are number one usually costly. Yeah. Um, and number two, they take time. Yeah. Because you know, to run an experiment, you need to have some sort of meaningful data to work with, etc. Yeah. So they do take time, mm -hmm. and therefore, like in the context of a startup, it's. Uh, sometimes very very difficult and also like, they take maybe engineering time that could instead be allocated to do something else and maybe you have yeah. like uh, five engineers in total you know so even if you, it takes you know two people time it's still 
time spent uh, doing something, uh, you know, that yeah. is an experiment that might work or might not work. So I found it to, to be honest for myself, to be a challenge, yeah. you know. Well, and, and you also have your strategy and your vision, right? Which is really yeah. important. So, so some things you can say, I, I, I like to kind of, you know, before you do the study, you probably really have done your homework in terms of, you know, what it should be and what is your strategy and vision. And so experiments are really great for, I would say, tactical decisions. Kind of which exact message do you put on this display ad for that experiments are pretty kind of efficient. But but yes, you need to have the strategy and the vision to to kind of shortcut some of that process. In so so, so with with the professor in organizational behavior, I just published a book called Break the Wall. You know why and how you should democratize digital in your business, and and we have almost no experiments there. It's like hey, here is an interesting framework that you can apply to your business. Here is how you can see some gaps, and then you know here here is how you fill the gaps. One of the interesting parts there is, for instance, if you have a new technology, should you should you hire new people or should you train your existing? Once I think startups were like that too, because we make a big arguments for retraining your existing employees because they have, you know, they, they they know the business, they know your values and the company's values, and and bringing in somebody very highly paid, you know, that takes time to get them kind of whole culturated in the whole process. So that, there's there's some of the decisions that make there, and and yeah, in that book we have we have very few experiments to talk about indeed. Ah, and how do you go about that decision? Like, let's let's stay with that. Like, what what did you say in the book about uh, should you retrain your workforce or yeah. should you hire new people? In the end, what's less costly? Yeah. Well, well, so so in a lot of times we see that companies, you know, over-index on hiring new people, and and so the big benefits we see in in, in employees is that so. so uh, so, so that professor, her name is Zainab Akshahili, her dissertation was about norm transform in remote settings. And this was also the end of the 90s, so she was really ahead of her time. And so and so she has really studied how important the norms and the culture are, right? I mean, some people say always, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And so and, and it takes a while to, to, to kind of get people to buy in and internalize the norms of your company. Mm. And, so, and so once they have done that and, and, you know, and you hired some relatively smart and adaptable people, you know, it really pays off to, to trust them and to, you know, uh, to have them learn new things instead of, you know, for replacing them with somebody who claims that, that, that they know something or have a different pedigree. So, so there's a lot of things to be said for kind of, you know, staying with your core employees and, and, and retraining them when needed instead of just hiring from the outside. Okay. Ah, interesting. I want to run with you one more scenario. Yeah. So we talk about uh, decision-making uh, for, for personal decisions. Yeah. We talk about decision-making a, a bigger company like Amazon. We talk about decision-making for, for a startup. But how do we make decision as a society? Like, oh, wow. so, yeah. And I, I explained to you the background of these questions yeah. because it feels like, um, technologically speaking, and in this podcast we talk about uh, a lot uh about the latest technological innovation. And to me, it feels like we are a crossroads um, of technological breakthrough in many different industries. Uh, like AI is one, yeah. but like I can think about biotech uh, and genomics as well. 
talking about, you know, the studies that are being conducted to reverse aging, let's yeah. say, right? But certainly some that everyone is familiar with is, uh, is AI, right? And this quest to build uh, AGI, so artificial general intelligence. So how, as a society, should we go about uh, making very complex uh, decision-making that affect uh, all of us, right? So, for example... um, I'm sure you've seen this letter signed, uh, you know, by Elon Musk, uh, Yuval Nava, uh, Noir Arai, etc., uh, that call for um, for a stop, basically, yeah. uh, in the AI advancement, uh, because yeah. we should put some guardrails uh, uh, and some ground rules to to the development. Yeah. So, how should we think about those challenges? So, so and this comes very much in the realm of ethical decision-making frameworks, right? And so I used to, you know, teach a session about that, that talk. And, and, and so you have the utilitarian perspective, the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. You have the perspectives that said, no, you know, we should uh, basically take best care of the people who need our protection most in society. And, and, so, and so these are very important considerations to be made. I, I think I want to do, I, I really believe in democracy. So I believe in kind of presenting these frameworks to people. I'll give you a quick thing, right? So every time I'm paying taxes, I'm still upset. And in the US, it takes like half a day or a day. It's ridiculous how long it takes. And I'm still upset that there's no survey that says, hey, how do you want your taxes to be spent? I mean, it doesn't. It can be a non-binding thing, but wouldn't it be interesting if you have millions of taxpayers to have some idea about how much they want to spend on the military or on investment in technology or on... And fixing the roads. And I find it just amazing kind of how few opportunities we as citizens have to really kind of make our opinion heard. And so and so I, I think we can, you know, to a large extent pose these questions and, and of course we have to you know educate each other and ourselves. But to a large extent, we can also post these things at two forums that, you know, it doesn't have to be a formal referendum or a binding one, but to just get the idea of and, and the perceptions of as many people possible. I mean, for, for me, it's always kind of, you know, in technology, what can it do and what should it do? In the case of Elon Musk, you know, I think he's about the last person to <laughs> to kind of as the authority to to raise uh, ethical concerns. And, and you never know if he wants to stop to just make sure because he's behind on it to catch up, right? But but sometimes I feel that, that technologists completely overestimate what the technology can do. So I'm I'm for instance kind of I'm like, you know, artificial general intelligence, you know, this is this is decades away, but that's my personal opinion, right? So I tend to kind of find that one less immediate than, for instance, climate change, where I see the things you know already going on right now. But but I think that different people have very different perspectives about what threats are the most important to our society right now, and, and very reasonable. And and people have very different opinions about kind of which which alternatives are actually feasible and should we do right, and 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 how costly they are to them. So so there are some good ethical frameworks. There are some great ways to get informed. But I think we should, to to a large extent, trust democracy and trust it more than now instead of just going and voting. Also, just have forums where we can regularly get the opinion of people without only having to listen to the the loudest shouters that you sometimes have when you kind of do these kind of town halls and so forth. Yeah. So 
I'm mindful of time because I know that we have a hard stop. But I have to say, this has been an amazing conversation. I am really uh, super interested in in the topic of decision making. Once I even wrote an article and share like how I make decisions as a product manager. Yeah, oh, fantastic! I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, and therefore. I will. I really appreciate your your time, and we'll leave uh, all the resources and your book, yeah. your books in the in the show notes, uh, so a listener uh, can check it out and deep dive uh, more on the topic of decision making. And I love uh, to do around to at one point uh, okay. in the future. Likewise, it was a pleasure talking with you, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you very much, yeah. and for listeners, uh, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It will be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.